you guys glad you guys are here uh i have been drinking water out of my water bottle which i brought from home i was doing some outdoor work before dinner water because it's what was close at hand hose water from the hose delicious hose water in a water bottle disgusting you know what i'm talking about if you ever tried it you know i don't know what the difference is but it is true so anyway i just wanted to share that with you because it's part of something I'm going through right now. Um, yeah, welcome. I mean, this is a big week, right? Uh, MotCon week. So the fact that you're here is cool. I'm glad you're here. I'm excited to get into this with y'all. I'm really excited about this uh, topic we're looking at. Um, but welcome to RUF. You know, RUF is about Jesus and what he's doing in our midst. It's not about having it all together, not about being a good person, not about being impressive. It's not about taking yourself seriously. It's about taking Jesus seriously. So we're here to do that together this morning, this evening. It's been a busy day, guys. Um, I'm Willis. I'm the campus minister here, and uh, I love being here. So thanks for being here with me. As I say every week, I'm not a good person, but Jesus loves me, and he loves you, and that changes everything, truly everything. And tonight we're going to look at how that changes our approach to the law and our understanding of the law. The law of God, our approach to it, our understanding of it, Jesus changes that. So um, I want to start here with a story. Um, when I went to go over to my grandma's house when I was like, you know, 5'10", uh, when I was little, we had these like, she had this one drawer of movies and like Mission Impossible was in there, the first one. The Princess Diaries is in there, great movie. Uh, a few others. There's like an old cartoon version of Gulliver's Travels, which is kind of creepy, but also awesome. Anyway, and we watched these movies. And my grandma wasn't a movie person. I'd be watching there with my cousins in the, movie, the TV room. Grandma wasn't going to watch with us. She wasn't into movies. But inevitably, she would walk across the house and kind of come stand in the door like halfway through the movie and just start asking questions. And she had like an awesome Southern accent, which I wish I could imitate, but I can't. But she'd be like, who's that? Like, what are they doing? And like, where are they going? And where are they? And who killed who? And why? And, and it was so frustrating because like we're in the middle of the movie trying to watch it and she would just be kind of interrupting. And we, I think, most Christians are like that when we read the Bible. We open up our Bibles to the New Testament often and we're already more than halfway through a movie that started a long time ago and we kind of come into it and this, we're confused. And we might even know that we're confused. We might feel like, yeah, sweet, I got it, and be missing two-thirds of the story. And even if you are a person here who's like read the Old Testament, read the entire Bible, I bet there's still things there for you that are confusing. And so we want to dig into that tonight, especially this one feature of the Old Testament, which is the law of God. Okay, so by this I mean the, the portion of the Old Testament that gives commands and laws of what to do, what not to do, Old Testament has a lot of different genres in it, poetry and wisdom literature and history and even apocalypse, but some of it is law. We're going to talk about that tonight because that's the topic of the passage tonight that we're going to read in a second here. Um, what comes to mind when you hear the law of God, the law of God? What comes to mind? What does that make you think of? Is it the Ten Commandments? Is it the book of Leviticus? Where many of those laws are found, maybe? Is it like some weird, obscure laws about cooking or hygiene or hair length or like fabric types? 
perhaps it's a law that intersects with modern social issues like sexual, uh, like homosexual activity or same-sex sexual relations. My experience is most Christians are confused about what these laws mean, what their purpose is, and how much they apply to Christians today. We have questions. Which laws still apply? If they apply, why some and not others? And these questions are related to, I think, an even more important question about what these Old Testament laws say about God. You know, because we're trying to relate to God in Jesus. And sometimes the Jesus we meet in the New Testament feels different from the God of the Old Testament who gave us these laws, which are sometimes hard to understand. So what's this God like in the Old Testament? How is he different by nature from Jesus? And how do we relate to him? And because we don't know the answers to these questions, or perhaps we have wrong non-satisfying answers, we often make one of two mistakes. Either we relax the commands of God and say that it commands less than it actually commands. Or we add to the commands of God and say that God wants us to do more than he actually tells us in Scripture. Both mistakes have disastrous consequences in leading to a departure from the kingdom culture that Jesus came in the Sermon on the Mount to tell us about and invite us into. If we're missing two-thirds of the Bible and the God who is there, the culture that he wants to form in us is going to be anemic, partial, not fully orbed. So we need clarity. We need clarity on this. We need clarity on the purpose of the law, the way Jesus relates to the law, and how we should relate to the law. So you see my three points. The purpose of the law, Jesus and the law, the law and you. That's where we're going. Let me read our passage. And then I'll pray and we'll get started here. From Matthew 5, 17-20, on your handout there. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your word, this is probably one of the more debated and misunderstood passages in the New Testament. And so I ask, Lord, that you will take um, my words, you will take our hearts, and you will change us and help us to see you as you are. Help us to understand what you're really saying, what you really want us to know about your law and how you want us to relate to you in the midst of it. So we ask that you would graciously do this by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so again, the three points we're going. The purpose of the law, Jesus and the law, the law and you. So first, clarity on the purpose of the law. I'll just tell you up front, I think the purpose of the law is to reveal God's heart for his people and shape our hearts to be like his heart. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was not simple outward obedience. Like God really wanted to have people who would obey all the rules and do all the right things. That would be good, but that's not the purpose. The purpose of the law is to reveal God's heart to his people and shape our hearts to be like his heart. We know that it's not just about our behavior because 
Both God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, they strongly criticize outward obedience when the heart is not aligned with God. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 29 and says, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So this is saying, God doesn't just want your behavior, he wants your heart. He wants you. He wants you. And so the purpose of the law is to reveal God's heart for his people and shape our hearts to be like his heart. Example. We're going to dip in and out, do some examples and stuff throughout the night here. One example. Here's a law from the Old Testament. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. It's just saying, houses in those days, flat roofs, actually because it kind of caught the breeze more being elevated was like prime real estate. Often if you had a guest over, you would let them sleep on the roof, the nice cool spot. And they're saying, don't have there be no wall at the edge of the roof so they can fall off or roll off in the night. Put a parapet there, bro. Keep them safe. So, the law reveals the high value God places on human life. And taken rightly, this law will shape our hearts to also value human life so highly that we take pains to protect the lives of others, even from the consequences of their own foolishness. Right? Any responsible human being or adult should be able to not fall off a roof. But even if they're so clumsy or so foolish as to maybe do that, we protect against that. Because human life is very valuable. Okay. The point is not the wall on the roof. Unless you think obedience to God means that you have to live in a house with a flat roof and build a wall around it. But here's the thing. Even if you do that and invite your neighbors to stay up on the top of the roof, you could be disobedient to the heart of the law. If you fail to highly value and protect the lives of others, you're still missing the point of the law. So in fact, a better application of this law, a better way to obey this law would be to build a fence around your pool in your backyard. Right? Okay. Let me illustrate. Uh, at my house, I have some laws for my kids. I don't call them laws. I don't even really call them rules. But like, we have some rules in my house. When we gather at the table, they have to sit with their hands in their lap and not talk until the food is served. Maybe it seems strict, but believe me, it's better that way. Uh, we also have another rule. No hitting. Tell the truth. Hold my hand when we cross parking lots and roads. They're like five, five and a three, so they got to hold the hand. Uh, and also, they can get as muddy as they want when they play outside. We never tell them off for like getting too dirty or too muddy. That's just some of our rules. So you can understand some things about me from these rules. I care enough about my kids to have rules, right? I value my kids' safety. I value their character, and I want them to become honest people who tell the truth. And I want them to enjoy life in a carefree way as kids. So some things about my rules and like my relationship with my kids will not change. My heart for my kids is not going to change. I'm always going to love them. I'm always going to want them to be safe. I'm always going to want them to be truthful. And my purpose for the laws, safety, character formation, will continue to be my purpose for my kids as long as I'm their father. But the rules themselves will change. I hope. <laughs> right? Like, like some of the rules, like, don't lie. Speak respectfully to your parents. Like, th that's going to continue, but I'm hoping that I don't have to keep telling them that right? And, and the way they actually live out obedience to that is probably going to look different from when they were a kid. 
Other rules, like holding my hand when we cross the street, is just hopefully going to no longer be needed in like within the next 10 years, right? And they can just safely look both ways and do their own thing. So, the purpose of the law, in the same way, is not so much rote obedience as to reveal God's heart for his people and shape our hearts to be like his so that we actually want to do what is right. Does this mean that obedience to the law is unimportant? That doesn't really matter. It's all about the heart, so who cares about obedience? No. Our passage specifically contradicts that idea. Jesus says, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We still have questions. Let's turn to Jesus. Jesus provides clarity. So, second point, clarity on Jesus and the law. How does Jesus relate to the law? Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So know that when Jesus says the law and the prophets, that's shorthand for the entire Old Testament. The entire Bible, if you flip like almost three quarters of the way through, everything that comes before, that's the law and the prophets that he's speaking of. Okay, and so this is important because Jesus is a Jew, and he lives among Jews, and the Jews of his day that he's talking to as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, they place such a high value on adherence to the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament Scriptures, that the main question they're asking about Jesus is, does this guy take the law seriously? Is this guy legit? Is he actually going to uphold the law? And we're asking the same question, really, when we wonder how important is obedience to God's law for the Christian? And Jesus answers this question. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm not like throwing that away and starting a brand new thing. He says, no, I came to fulfill it. So Jesus fulfills the law. What does that mean? Okay, starting with the illustration that I think will help us understand this. My favorite trail in this area is Devil's Marble Yard Trail. Who's hiked Devil's Marble Yard? Sweet, a few of you. Good, you know, it's an awesome trail. Devil's Marble Yard, you start at the bottom and there's a few signposts and stuff and you kind of wind through like an old abandoned boy scout camp which is kind of creepy and weird you cross the bridge you cross the creek you start going uphill and then the trail brings you to devil's marble yard it's like this big boulder stack thousand feet long super cool you can clamber up to the top to the cliffs okay um where am i going here the marble yard itself is the fulfillment of the trail the marble yard doesn't abolish the trail. It doesn't do away with the trail. It doesn't make the trail bad. It just fulfills it. The trail finds its fulfillment in bringing you to the marble yard. Okay. The law finds its fulfillment in bringing you to Jesus. That was always the point. The law finds its fulfillment in bringing you to Jesus. He fulfills the law. How does he fulfill the law? Okay, so remember, the law reveals God's heart for his people and shapes our heart to be like his, that's the point. So how does Jesus fulfill that purpose? Jesus fulfills the revealing purpose of the law. Okay, so the law reveals God's heart kind of like in Morse code, dot, dot, dash, dot, dash, dash, whatever Morse code is. I don't know what I just spelled. The law is like Morse code, but Jesus is like full color surround sound because he's like a real living, breathing human being, right? He like actually lives out the law perfectly and we can see what it looks like in a specific place. So he, he reveals God's heart. If you want to know what God's heart is, look at Jesus. There it is. That's God's heart. Jesus' second way fulfills the heart formation purpose of the law. The law is supposed to shape our hearts, and Jesus does this. Just knowing God's laws 
and knowing what God, God loves, that doesn't shape your heart. You'd be like, okay, God loves that stuff. I kind of hate it. And that's kind of where we are on our own. But Jesus wins us over with his love. And then he puts his Holy Spirit inside of us to actually take our lawless hearts that hate what is good and love what is evil and change us to where we actually begin loving what is good and hating what is evil just like God does. So he actually fulfills this purpose of the law to change our hearts and make them more like God's heart. Last way, he fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. Okay, so as we see the law reveals God, as we see God and how perfect he is and how we fall far short of that because we're like, I'm not following that law very good at all. As we see how far we fall short, that's actually part of the point. Because part of the point of the law is to prime us for our need for a savior. That we would realize, oh shoot, I need a savior. And so that when Jesus comes and we meet him, we see him, we're like, that's my savior that I need because he perfectly fulfills the law. He, he solves this problem that the law reveals in us, the problem of our guilt that makes us deserve eternal separation from God and exposure to his punishment in hell forever. That's a massive problem that the Bible talks about. And Jesus solved it by perfectly following God's law in both heart and action, earning the reward that is owed to a perfect person, which is peace with God and eternal life with him, and giving that reward to us, to his people. Not only that, he he took the consequences that were owed to every wicked person who breaks God's law every day in thought, word, and deed, you and me. He He took that consequence by taking the guilt of our sin on himself that it might be nailed to the cross with his body. And so as we see the law, we see like, whoa, Jesus died for all of those sins. My failure to obey all of those laws. And we actually, he becomes more glorified in our sight as we actually understand what the law is calling us to. So like, that's the gospel. Amen. Praise God. What does it mean for our questions though? If Jesus' death buys forgiveness for all my sin and gives me the credit for all Jesus' righteousness, then in what sense do I still need to obey? You know, do I still need to obey God's laws? Because I thought I was already perfect in his sight by the blood of Jesus. Even if we understand that our obedience should be a response of love to the God who has saved us, you know, rather than like a duty or an obligation by which I obtain salvation, that still doesn't answer the question, what exactly does godly obedience look like? Does it look like obeying Old Testament laws or not? So, last point here, clarity on the law and you. So I want to argue here that the question, which Old Testament laws do I need to follow, is the wrong question. It's not going to help you obey God's law from the heart. If you read the law in the Old Testament asking that question, you will find arbitrary reasons to keep and adhere to some laws and reject others. And what's worse, your heart will not be shaped to become more like God's heart. So a better question is, what does this law, whatever law you're looking at in the Old Testament, what does this law show me about God's heart? And if my heart were like that too, what kind of behavior would it produce? This question is based on the biblical assumption that, uh, to coin a term, the physics of God's morality, just the way his morality is, that's built into the fabric of the universe. The physics of his morality does not change because God does not change. So good has always been good. Evil will always be evil. They're never going to change because God never changes. But inherent to God's world is growth, 
development, change, new civilizations, new peoples. God himself is redeeming his people in new ways throughout history. Like Jesus was a new thing. It brought a new era. And so that influences how God's morality physics applies today. Illustration from archery. I'm getting back into archery right now. It's fun to shoot a bow and arrow. And like back in the day, uh, you know, there's these fundamentals about archery that have never changed because it's like all about physics and geometry and like materials and engineering. So all you, you know, physics people and engineers, like you're going to love this stuff. It's just like, you know, uh, straighter arrows fly straighter through the air. They just do, right? Crooked arrows are never going to fly straighter than, than, you know, straight arrows. Bowstring material that stretches will produce less power. Sharper, sturdier arrow points will kill most large mammals more quickly and better. That's just true. Okay. So at one time, these principles meant that Osage was the best wood for building bows and cedar was the best wood for building arrows, best materials out there at one time. And then aluminum and fiberglass and carbon fiber come along. And now we build bows out of aluminum and fiberglass and arrows out of carbon fiber because they provide a more optimized mix of the strength, flexibility, weight. Physics didn't change, but the purpose of bows and arrows didn't change, but new developments changed the way those lasting principles are adhered to. So this will come into clearer focus as we see Jesus and the apostles interacting with the law in the New Testament, which they do all the time. They're constantly asking the question, how does the Old Testament law apply to the people of God now? And we're going to look at a lot of that. God, and the, the pattern we'll see is that God's unchanging morality physics apply to new developments in redemptive history in new and deeper ways. Examples. Okay. So right after our passage, Jesus shows people the Ten Commandments, and he's like, these cut way deeper than you ever realized. You might have looked at the Ten Commandments and been like, well, never murder anybody. I guess I'm good. Jesus is like, actually, no. When you hate someone in your heart and are angry with them, that's the same as murder. You're as guilty before God because of that as you would have if you had actually murdered them. Okay? He doesn't say, adultery used to be bad, but now it's okay. He says, actually, um, adultery now? now, And this has always been the case, but Jesus is revealing it in a new way. When you lust after someone in your heart, that it makes you as guilty before God as adultery ever has. God's morality physics didn't change. Sexual expression has always been intended for marriage between one, one woman and one man. And anything outside of that has always been condemned. And he's saying it's actually not enough just to refrain from cheating on your spouse. Conformity to God's heart actually means refraining from even looking at another person with lustful desire. Okay, another example. Peter has this weird vision where God shows him a bunch of animals in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the Old Testament law forbade him to eat these. So like pigs, alligators, other random stuff. Um, some of the animals we don't even know like what it's talking about anymore. But God's people used to know. Anyway, God shows him all these animals, and he's like, eat. And Peter's like, uh, hold up a second. I thought I wasn't supposed to eat that. And God's like, no, no. Like, I've made these clean. Eat this stuff. It's good now. God's morality physics never had a problem with pigs and alligators or whatever other scaled animals, like, in and of themselves. It wasn't about that. His concern was to help his people retain their distinct culture and value system as distinct from other people groups for as long as his redemptive activity centered on Israel. And what better way to do that than like their food? You know, something so near and dear to them. But now that Jesus has come and become the new center 
of redemptive activity, God's people are no longer limited to Israel, right? And what better way to signal that than through food? Come to Jesus and eat what you want. Bring on the bacon, whatever. Like, eat what you want, just focus on Jesus. And yet, we, as God's people today, are still called to be different, distinct, not by not eating pig anymore, but by being salt and light, and it looks different. So, throw back to last week. We're still called to be different because God's morality physics has not changed. Last example here. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul responds to a critique that some people had leveled against him because apparently like the churches that uh, Paul had founded had been like sending him donations to kind of support his ministry. And some of his uh, enemies were like, wow, okay, Paul, like a little greedy, you know, like chill, you shouldn't be doing that. And Jesus, uh, Paul is responding to this and he, he uses this Old Testament law. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox, muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Okay, the meaning of the Old Testament law was simply to not put a muzzle on an ox's mouth, or an oxen's I don't know, an ox's mouth while it's like working in the grain fields so that it could like just chow down as much as it wanted because it's not going to take that much grain. And like he's, the point is, it's kind of cruel to like make a hungry animal work. The one who works deserves pay. That's the principle. And Paul freely takes this and applies it in a new way. He says, just like animals deserve their wages of food, people do too. If someone's working, they deserve what they get. They deserve a reward. We learn that God is even more concerned with justice in our relationships with other people as he is in our interaction with animals. Makes sense. In God's morality physics, work deserves a reward and you shouldn't withhold it. So Paul's application actually goes beyond the letter of the Old Testament law, but not against the Spirit. It cooperates perfectly with God's heart. So I hope that in these examples you see that the question is not, does this law still apply? Because all the laws still apply, in a sense. And it is this sense that Jesus refers to when he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, the smallest little bit of marking in the Hebrew language. That would be equivalent to like the difference between Arial font and like Times New Roman where it has like the little wings out from the letters and stuff. Like chop that. He's like, not even that. That's not going to pass away. We'll pass from the law until all is accomplished. They haven't passed away. They all still apply. The question is how? How does this law apply? What does it reveal about God's heart? What heart change does it encourage in me? And what behavior would that heart change lead to? leading to an earnest effort to live out that behavior. So, in conclusion, I want to revisit how this passage deepens our appreciation of the gospel. Okay. So let's revisit the gospel. In the rest of chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount that we're preaching through, we're about to hit, go there next week, Jesus takes these Old Testament laws on adultery, murder, divorce, oaths, and like I said, he doesn't repeal them, he actually deepens them and shows him them shows us what hard obedience looks like to that. Hate makes you as guilty as murder. Lust makes you as guilty as adultery. This is why Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have sounded crazy to the people Jesus is talking to because the scribes and the Pharisees went like, unimaginably over the top in their adherence to the law. They're obeying all the laws. In fact, 
they added more and more and more and more rules so that they wouldn't even come within like a 10-yard stick of breaking the law, right? And we could talk for days about all the different ways they did that and the crazy weird little laws they had. Like, for instance, on the Sabbath, you can't work. That's what Jesus, that's what God said, rest on the Sabbath, don't work. And they're like, okay, you can take one stitch of clothing, but don't make two stitches. That would be work. So stuff like this. Okay. So they add all these rules to make sure they never broke it, and they made obedience really hard. But Jesus reveals obedience to be actually impossible. Nobody can obey this law with our heart. Nobody can. Nobody ever has. And this suggests, based on what Jesus said, that nobody will enter the kingdom of heaven. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus makes his children more righteous, actually more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. First, because our righteousness before God is not our own doing, but the finished work of Christ given to us. So those who have faith in Christ are far more righteous in God's sight than the Pharisees could ever have been. And the second way is because Jesus actually changes our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He makes us more and more want what God wants, want to obey him. And the actual inner realities of our hearts become more righteous than the Pharisees' hearts could ever have been through mere outward obedience to all the rules they made up. So in two ways, Jesus actually does make us more righteous than the Pharisees. So to land this plane, the pressure is off. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law and guaranteed eternal life with God to all those who have faith in him. And in that sense, you don't have to follow the law. You don't have to. You're not saved by obedience. You're not under the law. You're under grace. You don't have to follow the commands of the Old Testament or the commands of the New Testament to be saved. All you have to do is admit that you never could. That might sound crazy, you guys. Stick with me. We're turning this ship here. You have to admit that you never could obey the law. If that was your game plan, I'm just going to tell you right now, throw in the towel, guys. According to Jesus, it's impossible. Admit that you never could, that you're a lawbreaker, that you're dependent on Jesus alone for salvation, and that you're made perfectly righteous by him. Accept that. Receive that righteousness. And this leads to a heart that loves God and actually wants to obey him and all of his laws in every part, which is the one thing, that heart change, that's the one thing that rule following could never accomplish. It can never change our hearts. So, quickly, three specific applications, and then a general one. One, read the Old Testament. If we don't, we can't understand what God's doing in the Old Testament without Jesus, but we also can't understand what Jesus is doing unless we know what came before in the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. Listen to sermons, listen to podcasts, read the Old Testament. All right. Second, identify both how you are tempted to relax the commandments of the law or to add to them. Sometimes that's different personality types. Sometimes it's just situational. How are you tempted to relax the commandments of the law? Because like, oh, that sounds super hard. I'm going to go ahead and assume that that one no longer applies. That's not biblical. Or things that you are just really like committed to, principles that you just really hold and believe and think, I and all Christians should just live this way that God doesn't command. But you're going to stick to that. Identify these two ways and confess those to the Lord and ask him to give you a heart that actually wants what he wants. No more. No less. The final application, if you're still confused, is come back next week because Jesus is going to like, we're going to get into this, the specifics of how this plays out. So let's pray. 
Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you, Jesus, came to fulfill the law. And it was a heavy burden for your people to carry for a long time. It still feels heavy to us sometimes. And we don't want to tend towards just doing whatever we want and pretending like that's okay. But we also don't want to be burdened anymore by this idea that we have to obey the law in order to be saved. So Jesus, lead us into the tension where we freely receive and hold on to and accept and believe that you made us righteous, perfectly righteous, and nothing we can do is going to ever add to that. And also give us these hearts that want to obey you and actually that we become in practice more righteous. So Jesus, lead us into this, we ask this week in your name. Amen.